Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 451. Coming from Shavuos, so this will also be somewhat of a post-Shavuos edition, talking about Matan and its aftermath and its effects upon us as we go into the continuation of the year. This program is in merit of Baruch Binyom ben Menuchalana and Miriam Baschayasar Altoiz, Yukusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todras and Miriam, Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. So, as I said, coming from Shvuz, which was Friday and Shabbos, Isruchag, which means bound to the holiday, so we're still under the glow and the aura of Matan We discussed it at length last week. So, but there are a few uh, follow up questions I'd like to begin with. And we'll talk about uh, the end of Svira Sa'ema, which concluded the 49 days that led to the 50th day of Matan Teira, Pasha Nose, and some other follow-ups and interesting topics. It's a good opportunity to invite you all to submit any question you like. Nothing is off-limits, nothing is taboo, nothing is censored at chassidusupply.com, where you can submit completely anonymously your questions. You can also find all the archives of previous programs as well as other Hasidic resources, chassidusapply.com. So, beginning with uh, Shavuos, the question, what is the significance of the 40 days Moshe was on the mountain? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, is there significance that Moshe stayed on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the Torah? And the flood of Neach was also for 40 days and nights. What is that? What, what is that is what is transformative about the number 40? When the world which transforms from state of Gaulus to Gula of Mashiach, will the number 40 also be significant? Okay, so that's a great question. And a good question also to begin with an introduction. What exactly is the work that we should be doing now as we come from Shvuas? So we know Matan Teda was a revolutionary event that transformed existence till this very day. The ability, empowering us with the ability of marrying heaven and earth, of transforming the material world into a spiritual environment. To take a physical object and make it a chefzah something that's holy. That was not possible before Sinai. Because there was a there was a schism, there was a separation between elyenim and tachtenim, between, between spirit and matter, between energy and matter. Mantele made it possible to join, which is, of course, the purpose of existence to make a dira betachtenim. A dira leizbarach, a home for the divine, in tachtenim, which means in the physical material world in which we live. So, that, that being the message of Matantele, then the day after Matantele is the first day when we're tested. How are we doing? Because ever since, the work has been now to take the power that we received at Sinai and implement it. At the time it was through building the Mishkan, but as the generations passed and the temples were built, till this very day, our job has been to transform this world, refine it. We're told, especially the Rebbe's emphasized, that we are the seventh generation from the Alta Rebbe, like Moshe was the seventh generation from Avram, to finish the job of a Shachanti Besecham, of transforming the world. After the millions and billions of good deeds and mitzvahs and sacrifices done, the world has been changed. 
So the Matanteda effect, the Sinai impact, if you wish, has ultimately permeated and transformed and changed the world. And we are now at the last throws, the last steps, before we cross the threshold into the Geula, which is the ultimate purpose of Matan Teda, like the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 36 in Tanya, had a taste of what? Of total divine revelation in this world. A world that the entire world will experience. A world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. So Matan Teda was a me'enza, gave us the power. And our work now, if everything that we do today, tomorrow, every good deed we do, every interaction, is the ability to implement Matan Teda. And as I said, we've done it for so many years, so we have the cumulative power and about to erupt in the fullest sense of the word where the entire world will indeed be that which was the intention and purpose of Matan Teda in the first place. So the first lesson to us all is, as we come from Sinai, and every year we experience it anew, every day we have to experience it anew, but especially when we come from that one, once a year event, and we just as then, we received the Torah with Emo, with our awe, and Yira, and reverence, and and and, reses, and Zia, trembling, and and, uh, and uh, Zia can be also sweat, and all the exertion that we place, that so too we have to experience it now. And that's why we say, The Nason, not that he gave the Torah, he gives the Torah. So we're given the Torah now anew, with new strengths, with new energies, to finish the job that we were, that we were charged with in transforming this world. And with that, let us go over now to the 40 days. Because every aspect is Bashgacha Pratis. Every detail is relevant and divine providence. It's not an accent 40. So what is exactly the symbolism of the 40? So what does jump to mind, what keeps to mind is the 40 days of the Mabu. So the first contrast you have is Matan Teda is a taste of Mala Aretz Deus Hashem Kamayim Liyam A world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Matan Teda is a taste of it. The Mabu was Mala Aretz Chomos, it was a world filled with crime. And it was also covered in water to cleanse it. So that's the first connection. But we still have to know what does the number 40 indicate. So actually the Tzemach Tzedek, in a few places, and I'm looking right now in Eidat Teda Mates and Eidat Teda Dvarim, these are swarm of the Tzemach Tzedek, where he discusses this. It's actually gathered together in a sefer called Sefer Al-Kutim, Dach Tzemach Tzedek, which I had the honor to work on Back when it was established by the Rebbe in Tov Shalom Zayin through Tov Shemem Gimel, those six years, now it's a 25-volume set. So he brings, and he says, Yesh Lamer, just to read a few lines, why is it 40 days and 40 nights? He says, That corresponds to the four letters of Yudke Vovke. Each one encompasses 10. That's 40, 10 times 4. In other words, it covers the entire spectrum of the cosmic order of any structure. Yud, hey, vov, hey. Everything begins with the spark. Thadat, chokhmah. Hey, it expands, bina. Vov, it extends. Hamshacha, dzah, mides. And the last hey is malchus. So the 10 spheres break into four categories, four groups. And that corresponds to the yud, ke, vov, ke. There are many other explanations as well. 
when you include the ten, the ten spheres in each of them, you have forty. That's one explanation. He gives another explanation that is the mem of Lachmi. Lachmachme Ateide. Thirty from Matzah and ten from Chometz. So that corresponds to Chesed Gvur Teferes Malchus. Also, each one including. He also compares, it's also encompassing 10, so that's 40. He also compares the 40 days of shaping a child. So what does that mean? That this was the shaping, Tater was the shaping of a new reality? So that's the correspondence of 40. He brings also, the Mishnah begins with a mem, and it concludes with a mem, basholem. So Mem again 40. So the beginning of Shas, the end of Shas. Gam Lohoyer from Mem saw the mikveh. The 40 saw the 40 cubits of a mikveh, which again corresponds to the four letters Yud, the four Yuds of Shem Ab, which brings into the, all the four worlds, Yamam Shech Ab is another configuration or permutation of Yud Kevavke, and it goes to the four worlds, Atzilus Bri Yitzir All of these, in sum, is demonstrating that Matan Teda was all-inclusive, all-encompassing. So it covers the entire gamut of the four different stages, all-encompassing each one ten. He also brings Anila Deidi, the four Deidi the four Yuds at the end of the letters. And finally, I, I, I suggest to look it up. It's on page Matis, Aleph Reish Pehei, that's uh, 1285, and um, Aleph Reish Ches. 1288, page 1288, and Dvarim, page 1819, Eirat Eirat. It's brought in Sefer Lakutim, the Erech, the entry is called Misparim Numbers, and Misparim the Erech, Mem, 40. He also brings, interestingly, that he connects it to uh, Bina. So we know there's the, we, we know there's the concept of Ada, Boy, and Shnin, Loikoi, Inish, Adaita, Derabe. Which means that a person till 40 years does not arrive at understanding the, the, the depth of his teacher. And that's why we say, Ben Arboim Labina. Now, for 40 years, you reach Bina. There are two opinions whether 40 years means from birth, at 40 years old, or 40 years from when you began learning with your teacher. And since every day above is considered like a year, so those were the 40 days that Moshe Rabbeinu represents the 40, again, the entire cycle of reaching the levels of trying to understand God and God's Torah in the fullest sense of the word. So that's why it was 40 days and 40 nights on, the, on, the, on Har Sinai. As I said, the Rebbe Tzemach Tzadik brings other elements of 40, but the bottom line is that 40 is a symbol of something all-encompassing. Four levels times 10, that's 40. And Egeri explained that how you, that corresponds, even though he doesn't bring it explicitly. But the Mem saw that brought the 40 cubits of a mikveh sometimes is related to the 40 days of the Mabal. The Mabal was meant to be Mei Adas It was meant to be water always represents Das, like Mola Oretz Deis Hashem. And Das, the day of cleansing, spiritual cleansing that comes through water. So the Teda did that in a in a powerful way, and the Asad Lovi will be a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. So as we look at it, so the number 40 has that significance. I remember when the Rebbe in Tavshin Nun was 40 years from Tavshin Yud, the Rebbe assumed leadership in Tavshin Yud after the Stalkers of the, of the Friedrich Rebbe, 
So then, 40 years later, it was Tav Shanun. They never spoke a lot of that year about the 40 years. That's when a person reaches Lev Ladas, as in Pasha Kisovi, he says, when the Eden came to the end of the 40th year of traveling in the wilderness, which was also 40 years, they were ready to really appreciate on a deeper level the, the deeper intentions of Rabbi, which in this case is the Abish himself, the ultimate teacher. So Martin Taylor represents all of that, which gives us the power, as I said before, to transform our corner of the world and continue doing so through bringing Taylor mitzvahs into the physical world and transforming it into a home and a divine for the divine. We also know that Matan Teda is the 50th day. It's 40 days when Moshe was on the mountain, but 50 days, the 50th day from leaving Mitzrayim. But we count 49 days, and we conclude the 49th day before Shavuos, and the 50th day, Chayim HaChamishim, is given to us from above, Matan Teda, as a gift. Because the 50th gate is something we can't reach on our own, but we can prepare for it. So it's a thought worthwhile also to talk about what is the sphere of Malchus and what are some examples of how we see it play out in our daily lives, being that Malchus is the last of the spheres. So Malchus, you may be familiar with the book I did on the Sphiris Emer, counting the Emer, the spiritual guide to counting the Emer. So Malchus there is the, the midah of Malchus is Remus, is Nasus, feeling of dignity. Being a melech, like we say, Mamlechus Kainim, the great Kaddish. There are Matan Teda, we're Mamlechus Kainim, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's a kingdom? Kingdom is an element of feeling like a king, like a queen, special, unique. Not in arrogance, but in humility, because that's ultimately Malchus is also humility. As the Tzemach Sadiq explains in the Mitzvah Mitzvah Minim Melech, the Mitzvah that talks about appointing a king. But each of us is Melochimheim, Ubnei Melochimheim, kings or children of kings, princes, because there's an element of understanding the human dignity that we were created in the divine image. And therefore, it's expected of us to behave like kings, with that type of dignity, with that type of majesty. In personal life, psychologically, you can call it self-esteem, self-confidence. You feel special. You feel that you're unique. You can have all the other spheres. You have a tremendous amount of love, chesed, and gvura, and discipline, and teferah's beauty, or compassion, you could have Netzach, which is ambition, determination, humility, and yielding and bonding. But if you don't feel dignity, you don't feel unique, those can also not necessarily fully fill up the most important part of all is to feel that you have something special to contribute in this world. So as we come to the conclusion of counting the Sphere, the last is Malchus, and Malchus Sheba Malchus. So on one hand, we know Malchus, like the moon. It has nothing of its own. But on the other hand, it channels everything. Because the humility, and we're talking here humility as a strength of a person, not is, goes hand in hand with self-esteem. But you know that it's not mine. It was given to me from above. And that channels everything. Which leads me to the next question. What is the sphere of Kesar and how is it sometimes interchangeable with Malchus? So Kesar on the other extreme is Ratzin is the desire of a person. It's higher than the ten faculties. The ten faculties, the imminent faculties that are what we call pnimim, keiches pnimim, starting from chach, mabina, das, and going all the way down till malchus. 
Keser is above them. That's why it's a makif. And that's why Keser is not counted with the spheres. In that case, you only count Keser when you don't count Das. That's another discussion which we've done, we've done in previous episodes. So the point being is Keser Malchus, we say Keser Malchus. Because Malchus is rooted in Keser. As a matter of fact, the Malchus of every world, Chassidus Kabbalah, Chassidus Teach, becomes the Keser, the crown for the next world. So Malchus of Atzillus becomes the crown of the next world. What does that mean in simple English? It means your Malchus, your leadership, your dignity, also allows you to be a true leader and inspiration to others. So you become like a leader, a Keser, the Keser of the next level. That's the process. But only when you're a Klerekon, you're an empty container where you receive and you absorb that which was given to you from above, that in turn allows you to transmit. Like the moon. The moon receives from the sun. And in doing so, it's able to give to the next level. But it says, Eishis Chayla Teres Baila. That Malchus ultimately has, reaches all the way in Kesa. So I don't know if I'd use the word interchangeable. Because not really interchangeable with Malchus. They have a relationship. Interchangeable would be more Kesa and Das. Which says, as I mentioned. When you count Keser, you don't count Das. When you count Das, you don't count Keser. Exodus explains, we're talking about Primisa Keser, Chetzenisa Keser. When you count Keser, you're counting the outer dimension of Keser. Then you don't count Das. When, you, when you're looking at the at, at Das, the Primis of, of, of the Sphiris, you don't count Primisa Keser, which is above the Sphiris. But the main, so bottom line is, Keser, interchangeable, I'd use more with Das. But as being a relationship with Malchus, absolutely. The Rebbe is a famous sikha in Tav Ches when he explained chess, the chessboard. In Avedis Hashem, he explained the pawn is Malchus. It's a simple foot soldier. They stand in the front line. But when the pawn reaches the other end, what does the Ish Posh, the simple foot soldier, reach? He becomes a queen. Malchus becomes Keser. The Neshama, as it comes down the Mata, is able to reach the highest levels that the pawn, when it reaches the other side, conquers the enemy, transforms a tachtenim into adira, then it becomes, it elevates Eishoschayel HaTeres Baila to Keser. One more question about Mat and Tera. Why would the angels object to the Tera being given to the people on earth? Spell it out. When Hashem, why would the angels object when Hashem informed them Moshe Rabbein was going to visit Shemaim and receive the Tera? Moshe made a valid argument that the Jewish people were the right ones to receive the Torah because we need our physical bodies to observe the mitzvahs and angels don't have physical bodies. The angels knew they didn't have physical bodies and therefore couldn't observe the Torah. So on what grounds did the angels even think Hashem should give them the Torah? Well, if you actually look in the story in Gemara, you're already jumping the gun. That's the story. When they heard that Moshe is coming to Shemayim to receive the Torah, so they said, Give your glory to us. Your precious uh, treasure to us. We're in Shemayim. The Rebbe has a very beautiful sikh. What was their argument? Bar Metzra. When you sell a house. So the first one who has right to buy it is the people who are neighbors. The immediate neighbor. Since the tater is coming from Shemayim, we live in Shemayim, the Malachim said. So give it to us. When Moshe came up the mountain and Hashem heard the Malachim saying that. So Hashem turned to Moshe and says to Moshe, respond to them. And Moshe says, trembled. So Hashem said, hold on to my throne and answer. Moshe did. He held on to the throne. He got God, power from God. 
And as a good advocate, what did he do? He opened up the Torah and he said, let's read. What does it say? I'm the God that took you out of Egypt. He says, He turned to the angels. Were you ever in Mitzrayim that we have to remember that God took you out of Mitzrayim? Then it says, He says, you have a father, you have a mother. Do you ever have a temptation to steal? So in other words, the whole Tate is addressing issues on earth. And that answer prevailed. So that's exactly the sequence of events. You could ask, why didn't the angels know that? You could also ask, why did Hashem ask Moshe to answer? Hashem couldn't answer. Or Bechal, did Hashem even have to answer to the angels? Because then he wanted to show that Moshe coming from earth, or bringing heaven to earth, if you wish, he had to answer to show them the quality of a, what means a tzaddik, what means a person on earth. To appreciate earth, you need someone from earth to answer. And that's what Moshe answered. And that's when they understood it. Conceptually, they were spiritual entities. It's similar to the famous story from the Baal Shem Tov, that the day after Simchas Teda, the angels are waiting for the Eden to wake up to be able to say their praises. They have to that the angels don't say shira, song, until the Eden pray below. The Eden was sleeping late because of Simchas Teda. And they went to clean up Gan Eden. The angels, as they, come to, as they come to Gan Eden, something strange, they see strange objects, souls, souls of shoes, worn out souls. They didn't know what it was, so they went to Malach Machal, he's the expert on the Jewish people. He says, oh, these are the souls from Dobre Missal, these are the souls from, from Vitebsk, not soul, S-O-L-E-S. From their hard dancing, the souls ended up in Gan Eden. So Malachim on their own don't understand Gashmias, and definitely not its qualities. They need Moshe to enlighten them. And when, they, and when they are enlightened, they understand that Adarab, our work below, actually elevates them as well. So the Kavonis did it with Tachtenim. So it's a lower level. Tachtenim means lower level than El Yenim. And that's what Moshe had to show them. That's where the Teda is given. Leiba Shamayimi. The Teda is not for heaven. The Teda is Ba'odis, given to this earth to transform the world into Adirab et Tachtenim. Al Tareb explains in chapter 36 in Tanya. Why? Because the higher worlds, they're a Yeridah Gabbada What's the Chiddush? On the contrary, Atzillus, as high as it is, it's not as high as Lifni Atzimtzum, as the Eir Ensof Lifni Atzimtzum. Tachtenim has something that no other world has, that Atzmus wants it, and has nothing in common, has no Giluim at all. And that's Dafka where the Kavan is. Okay. So now let's move over since it's also the week of Pasha Nose. Pasha Nose always comes after Matan Teda. So Nose, literally the lesson from Nose, Nose is Reish B'nei Yisrael, means to elevate, to lift, to count, but also to lift from the word Nose. Similar to the chapter that called Kisiso. So Bapashtas, in simple terms, remember once in Fabreng and the Rebbe explained that Nose that comes after Matan Teda. Is I believe sometimes a nasi that comes before Matan Teda, after Matan Teda is because Teda, Teda lifts us up. So the nasi after Matan Teda is a whole different level. Talked before about Malchus dignity. So nasi Esreish is telling us about the dignity that we are elevated to through Teda. Even higher than we were before. Which demonstrates again the unique quality that you, 
as an individual has, that no matter what you meet in the world around you, no matter how powerful it may be, you are higher than it. Because the purpose of it all is for you to come and transform it, for you to use it and harness it for divine purposes. You have the power to take anything in this world and not be used, not even for neutral purposes, let alone for negative purposes, God forbid, but to elevate it and make it exalted. And then the entire world shines with Malchus because everything is an extension, everything is an expression of divine glory. And that's the Nasi that each of us is and has the ability to introduce in the world around us. So that's a basic lesson. But there are quite a number of things in this parsha. A lot of got a lot of questions that I would like to address. Let's begin with uh, Birchas Kainim. This parsha has the the Birchas Kainim that the Kainim, the power to bless you, and the, all the, the 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 powerful priestly blessing. So a few questions came in about that. So we know the Kehanim are told, Ve'dabr Hashem al-Mesh al-Lemer, Ve'dabr al-Anba al-Bon al-Lemer, Kesev Orchei Zbe Yisrael, Amor Lehem, Here's how you should bless. Yivarech Hashem Yishmerecha, Yair Hashem Pono Ve'lecha V'chonek, Yusuf Hashem Pono Ve'lecha V'yasem L'cha Sholem. So the question is asked, if someone is not a Kohen, dear Rabbi Jacobson, if someone is not a Kohen, are they allowed to bless their friends using the text of Yivarecha Hashem Yishmerecha that the Kohenim used to bless us? Or should a non-Kohen use a different phrase or text while giving a blessing? So firstly, let's just bring Maiserav, I witnessed, and so many of us were the Rebbe, Rebbe Zayisrael, from Beis David. And the Rebbe would use this bracha, first of all to the Bochrim, every year, Erevim Kippur, that's how the Rebbe opened up his bracha, say the whole Pasuk. And just some words, the whole thing. All the way to Vaniya Vorachim. So there you have a Yisrael, a Rebbe, blessing with the Brach. That's the Brach. There were times the Rebbe also used the Brach in the Brach of Yom Kippur after Mincha. We also find there's a custom that Eden bench their children. Some use Yivarach, some use Ephraim and Menashe. Some say that's one of the reasons. But clearly, it's, if it was not allowed, then the Rebbe would never use it. So the, the brach is really for everyone. How do you explain it? It says kainim. So the formal birches kainim in Beis Amigdosh, obviously, and even in today's minig, where we do in Eretz it's every day. We'll talk about that shortly. And outside of Eretz Yisrael, it's the Yom Tevim, different customs. So there... It's a more formal version of it. The formal is coming through. Dafke the Vaniyavarchim, Dafke the Koyhanim were chosen. But remember, everybody has a Koyin within them. Mamleches Koyinim, as I said. Mamleches Koyinim v'gei Kodesh. The Rambam Paskins, the end of Hilch Shavita v'yevel, Lei Shevet Levi Bolvad, not just Shevet Levi, but everyone who separates themselves from this material world is a Miskadish Kedush Kadoshim. There he even talks about non Jews. And then there's a, and a Jew for sure is, is even higher than a Kayin Godel and Nichnes Lefnei Lefnim, as the Gemara says. Someone who learns Teda. So you have the concept of a Kayin within each one of us. Now, when it comes to a Rebbe, a Rebbe is, in a sense, the Kayin Godel of a generation, even though technically may not be from Shevet Levi. Moshe was from Shevet Levi. But the Adam was the Kayin Godel. 
But Moshe had the Din Koyen, and some say Koyen God, he was able to go into Kedush Kedoshim. Different opinions on that, Midrashim. But the idea that every person has an element of Koyen in him can be explained. That's why we're able to use that Brachim. But the formal version, like in anything, even though this is Skalus, we all encompass each other, but there's those that have the Zoyer Beit Fei, that is their mitzvah, that is their role, the actual Koyen. Why don't we say Berichus Kainim every day outside of Israel? In general, we say one of the reasons there's only one day of Yontif in Israel and two days everywhere else is because Israel is on a higher and holier level, so they can accomplish in one day what it would take us two days to accomplish. Okay, that's actually from the Ramak. And the Ramak writes about it, and the Chassidus cites it, the reason that we have these two days. But when why then? But then why in Israel do do they do bechus every day? But we only do it a few times a year on Yom Tov. It would make logical sense that if we are on a lower level, if we are on a lower level, we would need all the blessings we can get, and would therefore need bechus every day, or maybe even three times a day, to make up for any deficiencies. Okay, very good question. Now, on one hand, you could say, one second, not everything. Is applicable. The Yom Tov Shein as the Maramak explains, is because we need more days to absorb that same amount of energy. But for example, Trumas and Mises, we don't say that. That needs the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. So you could argue that holiness of Eretz Yisrael, at times that it has specific mitzvahs that are only there. The fact that the world is a lower level, so they don't have those mitzvahs. When it comes to Yom Tov Shein we need more time to absorb it. It's not because we're on a higher level. We need, we're on a lower level. So you could say, depending case by case, where the Tata designates, sometimes we need more time. Sometimes we can't do things that are done in Eretz Yisrael. But with Bechaz Kenim, it's actually a unique story. Because when you look at the Beis Yosef and the Alter Rebbe and Shulchan Aruch, they actually talk about the reasons why Bechaz Kenim did not, is not done every day outside of Eretz Yisrael. And the different reasons are given. One is because the Kayim can't go to the mikveh, they have to go to the mikveh beforehand, some argue. And there are other reasons as well given. The Kayim have to want to do it, they're busy with other things outside of Eretz Yisrael. But the Beis Yosef and the Alter Rebbe echoes that these reasons are not enough. As a matter of fact, they even lean, lean on saying that they wish they could actually implement that we should say Brichus Kayim outside of Eretz Yisrael also every day. Whatever reason, we don't have the exact reason why they didn't. But clearly there was reasons that it shouldn't happen. But the Rebbe explains actually that the Alter Rebbe, if he could have had it his way, could have, but it was not meant to be. So we don't necessarily know exactly why it wasn't meant to be, but it was not necessarily, that. Not, but if they had, had their way, they would have made it that way. And indeed there are customs, there are Sfardim, there are others that have the custom of definitely on Shabbos, some have even every day. So the concept of having brachet bichas kenim is a constant, is, like I said, in Eretz Yisrael every day. Outside of Eretz Yisrael, for whatever reason, we don't know why. But there is the concept that we should have it. So we could say, beruchinis, we have it in some way. And we do say in Shemnesa every day, we do say the bichas kenim. It's just not the kayhanim that do it. It's the shliach tzibur. The chazan that leads, then the Shemnesa, when he, when he says, the brachim mishulashas. The three, the three uh, triad, the blessing. Okay. With that, let us move on to some other Nase questions. So, Nase also has the parsha of Saita.
Seita is, of course, where a woman is accused of infidelity, and there's a way of testing whether it's right or wrong. Now, Hashem says, erase my name to prove that she's right. And if she's right, she'll be blessed. She'll be blessed with children. If not, there are dire consequences that happen to her, as the Torah tells us. So the question, the first question is asked, why is the law of Satan not equally applied to a man accused of infidelity? Why is it Dafka a woman? You could also, if you want to broaden the question to polygamy, even though today after Chenem der Bein it's not acceptable, but there was a it was conceptual that it was possible. Even though it was frowned upon, in most cases it never happened. There were cases that it did happen. A, wife, a woman cannot have more than one husband. So some explain that the idea of infidelity is far more sensitive when it comes to a woman because she's the one that carries the child. And the Judaism of a person is determined by the woman. So you're far more careful. That doesn't give any license, God forbid, or lessen the sin if a man is involved. But from a cosmic and from a, pers- and a, and a, and a practical perspective, it is the woman that is far more powerful in this regard. You could also say that the fact is that by women it was far less prevalent because women were trusted more. They were far more a woman's dignity is within much more tzniyazdik. We see many different situations. They were the ones that held the fort and the men were not so easy. Just like in Mitzrayim when the woman said let's have children. They were sensitive to these things, to intimacy, when yes, when not. Men sometimes were less careful. So therefore, the Torah is emphasizing that since women are the so-called the carry the banner, that's why even one blemish is a big thing, so Satan becomes a very fundamental thing. Again, this is not a license. It's just like we talk in Zayar, that talks about why kashus is only for the Jewish people. So it says because their heart of the human body is more sensitive. So you're much more careful what enters into the heart. So the same thing, the Jewish people have a certain sensitivity. Those that have more sensitivity, you have more prohibitions. So you can apply the same thing to Seta. As a matter of fact, the Gemara in Seta says, now why, was, why don't we do Seta anymore? Because adultery began to become more prevalent. And so from that you can derive now, the men may have been a little more prevalent than it was by women, but once it became more prevalent by women, God forbid, they stopped doing Satan. So Satan can also look very harsh because look what we're doing, but also shows on the standard. We're looking for a woman. You're a pure woman. What are you behaving in such a way? Even a, even a rumor has to be dispelled. And ultimately, it actually teaches us one of the most powerful lessons. The Rambam brings the end of Hilchus Hanukkah, that from Satan we learn that Sholem Bayis is the most important thing. Because God says, erase my name to preserve fidelity, preserve harmony between husband and wife. In other words, the whole mitzvah is to come to teach us to preserve, to erase God's name in order to preserve. We're not looking, God forbid, to find her guilty. We're looking the opposite, to clear her name. And God says, erase my name. Which brings me to the next question. What is the deeper meaning of behind the Seita? So the deeper meaning behind the Seita is to show us this, that the profound sanctity and the profound purity of intimacy, of sexual relations. And when you go into the Holy of Holies, you can't just go in. Someone goes in with a blemish, they can't survive there. 
because the Holy of Holies is so pure, everything has to be done with great care. Think of it this way, a piece of dust on, a, on your finger or on your, or another part of your body is no big thing, but a piece of dust on your eyeball is extremely irritating. <clears throat> because it's all about what kind of level. The Kedekadoshim is so holy that everything has to be clear. That explains why the laws of sexuality are so detailed. People say, why? What's the obsession? Every little thing. Drop of blood. The days that you count. The laws are very, very stringent. Because you're dealing with going to the Holy of Holies. The only time we can be like God and create a child, create life, is in a state of intimacy. So the Tate is extremely careful when it comes to that. The holier something is, the more care that's taken. That's one of the reasons that blood is not to be eaten. Why not all food ten turns into blood? Don't you want all food? The nutrients become part of Dhamma, Basar, Kipsari. So eat blood. But blood is so pure that everything can be a blemish. So anything that's very pure, also all the negative energies come to, get, collect, come to, to, go, to, uh, to wean energy there. That's what it is. You'll see. When places where it's arid and dry, you don't have maggots. You don't have parasites. Parasites come with his nourishment. The more the nourishment, the more the kedusha, the more the tumma possibility. So the seit is actually indicating how pure it is, a relationship. And who carries it most is the woman. They are the ganol, the sealed garden, the ones that protect the, the sanctity of marriage. Should a man protect Of course a man should protect it. But whatever reason, a woman has that deeper instinct. Maybe the carrier of the child, malchus, we spoke earlier about Malchus. So what lessons does it offer us today, Seita? We're living in a time of crisis, an intimacy crisis, a sexuality crisis, a sexual identity. What does it mean? Seita teaches us, if you really think of the whole story, not just the specifics. I understand the gory details is usually what distracts us. But it's much deeper than that. Why is, why is it so focused why is the focus on it? Because it's the center of life, Taras HaMishpacha, a pure life. And indeed, that's why it says, when she's cleared her name, she will be blessed with having children. Because the point of it all is perpetuating, being Kayach Einsof into this world, the power of Einsof, which is through children and children's children. The essence of life is, what, is, is, in the, is born in intimacy. And that's why the sanctity of intimacy is so vital. Which also explains the next question. Why do we study the tractate of Seita in preparation to Shavuos? Seemingly the opposite. Seita is like infidelity or accusation of infidelity. Shavuos is Yem Chasanos is It's the marriage. Precisely for that reason. Because when you prepare for marriage, how do you prepare? By being very careful in every given area. And what does Seita really tell us? That anyone that deviates, which is one of the reasons, reasons meanings of Seita, is like, No one sins except in the Ruach Shtus. Another meaning in Seita. Shtus. Insanity. Folly. Nonsense. Why? Because a Jew fundamentally is one with the divine. Knesset Yisrael, Malchus is one with the Kuch God is like the, the groom and the Jewish people are like the bride and they're one. That's what happens at Matan Teda. So what better way to prepare is by telling us that's who you are, Be'etzim. Anything else is a deviation. It's a Seita. 
It's a deviation and it's a ruach shtus. You're wandering away from your very essence. So Satan actually teaches us about our very essence and that's why God says, erase my name in order to preserve peace between husband and wife. Because peace between husband and wife is also peace between us and God. So it like preempts. And even though they would build a golden calf, which is a form of Satan, a form of infidelity, adultery, betrayal, and yet Biltim was also that God would ultimately forgive them as Moshe insisted on Yom Kippur, 120 days after Matan Teirah. 40, 40, 40. Again, th- cycles of 40. Why? Because that's what they be'etzim are. They're one, one essence, husband and wife. So another question came in. Can we trick the system and use Satan to be blessed with children? Can a mar- concerning the passion talking about the Satan, can a married woman having difficulty having a baby trick the system by purposely locking herself in a room with a man that isn't her husband, but not doing any Avedis with that man. Then when she is made to drink the bitter water, since she is truly not guilty of doing an Avedis, she will, then re- she will then receive the promised blessings for fertility. Nowadays, we don't as- administer the bitter water ordeal anymore, but, with, 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 but what would today's equivalent be? Okay, so we know that's not, I mean, it's a cute question. <laughs> cute, I don't know if the word cute is right. It's pretty inappropriate, actually. But it's not really the way to go. First of all, even though it's not a sin per se, but the yichud is a sin, and that's not the way you get blessings. The way you get blessings is to pray to Hashem for children, to be with your husband in the most sacred way, most intimate way, pure way, as we've been discussing. Not by doing something that puts that into question, and then you're proven to be innocent. That's not the way. And indeed, the equivalent today, as I said, the equivalent is to appreciate the power and the need for sacred intimacy, for a relationship, and understand you're going into the Holy of Holies. The more we do that, the more we make the keli for the brachas that come from above. Okay, one final question on this. Whose job was it to clean up the mess in the courtroom if the Satan was a liar and drank the bitter waters and her stomach exploded? Right. Whose job was it to clean up the mess if the Satan was proven to be guilty? Okay, well... I don't know, I have to look that up. But it would be basically whoever's, whoever's responsible to be the janitor and cleaning up. They were cleaned up in the Beis Hamidus, the Trumas Hadeshen, and other aspects. That was on the Mizbeach. But there were people who did the cleanup, and I'm sure they did the same thing here, whether it was in a, in a, in a Sanhedrin or in a Bezdin. So I'm not sure whether this is a question just to, to, to be funny, but uh, it's not really funny at all, frankly. Frankly. But like anything in life, part of life is also cleaning up messes. But as I said, the whole purpose of Satan is that it shouldn't happen in the first place. That it should preserve the sanctity that you wouldn't need to prove anything. And even if you did, it was always the person would be proven innocent. And they would indeed have generations of children blessed and so on. One more thing in this passage that I'll address is what are the advantages and disadvantages of becoming a Nazir? If someone wants, to, wants, can they be a Nazir today, or is that only possible during the times of the Beis Amigos? So it's a two, two questions, two questions here. So let's start with advantages and disadvantages. So in truth is, on one hand, it seems like a Nazir is a person who takes upon himself an extra vow to be more careful 
And that person then cannot cut his hair, not drink wine, and so on. But then we say at the end, when his nazir ascends, he has to bring a karm chatas for a sin. What's the sin? So the Gemara says, Be satisfied with what the Tater told you not to do. You don't have to take on new stringencies. There's Don't subtract, but don't add. So there's a certain element. Why did he take upon this? Because he needed extra stringency because the Rashi brings, that's why it's connected to Seita, Reya Seita, but Kulkuli, he saw something inappropriate. So though there is that possibility, and therefore you add more Kedusha to your life, it definitely makes more Kedusha, a Nazir of Kedusha, it's holiness. But it also has an element that, that's tinged with something. So basically in our lives we have to be very careful. Do what's asked of you. You don't have to necessarily do more. There are situations, as the Rambam says, always choose the middle, middle path. There are times where we have wandered off or swerved off to the right, so then you have to go to the left to get back to the center. Or you've moved too much to the left, you have to therefore move more to the right to get back to the center. But that's not the normal routine. The routine has to be center, moderate, not extreme in any way. And if there's an extreme, sometimes, like a nausea, we'll need another extreme to straighten it out. How about today? So the truth is, Nazir is shayach today, but remember, you can't bring a carbon to end the Naziris. So basically, if someone takes a true oath of Naziris today, it's a lifetime Nazir. That's why, of course, it's discouraged. There were rare instances that people did take on that Naziris, but it's lifetime. And that's why it's funny. It talks about not to do it for that reason. Because we don't have the outlet to conclude the Naziris. It's an oath, it's a nether, and you need to, you need to absolve that nether. Okay. What is the relevance today? As I said, the relevance is now balance. I remember I, once speak, I was once speaking for a group of people. It was, had some political elements to it. Not, my talk was not political. But I remember I asked people, how many of you consider yourself right-wing? Have the crowd raise their hand. How many of left-wing? Have the crowd. How many extreme right-wing? So it was a smaller amount, but there was still a significant number. How many extreme left? Also a smaller amount. So I said, I want to thank you. Because the only way to know where the center of the road is by knowing where the extremes are. To know where, the, <laughs> where, the, where the, the curb is. So then you can create the center. So it's important to know that everything should be in moderation. That's the Tater's approach. Obviously, if it comes to loving people, love them abundantly. But especially when it comes to laws of Rafusha, Mesuda, things that are connected to avoiding, except with the Tater itself or Chazal of put in strict measures. Talked about intimacy, hilchus yichud. There because the stakes are high. But in general, it's always best to be on the moderate level. Again, there are instances, case by case, where a person may have to take on an extra stringency for a period of time to rebalance themselves, to recalibrate themselves. Okay. Following up, we have a few good follow-ups here, meaning interesting follow-ups. So estrangement. A few programs back, I spoke about the estrangement of a father saying, what do I do? I have a daughter who won't speak to me. Then I actually did a session with a doctor who wrote a book on the, on the, the laws of estrangement, estrangement. Estrangement, that's what he called it. Very interesting, with a lot of feedback. So being that it's a topic, sad topic, parents estranged from children, children estranged from parents. So I addressed it there. You can find it online. Just go to um, MeaningfulLife.com, look up estrangement, and you'll find more on this. 
But as a follow-up, I got a few people who wrote to me, so let me just cover that. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I participated in the tragedy of estrangement. That was the workshop I'm referring to. I divorced my, daughter, my daughter's mother when my daughter was two, and her mother took her to another country when she was six. Her mother did everything to poison her against me, and I've had extremely limited contact with her since. She is now, she's now 19, and a year ago cut off all contact with me, blocking me on her WhatsApp, etc. Having heard the presentation by you and Dr. Josh, I realize that were I even able to establish connection with my daughter, I may have to relitigate my relationship and divorce from her mother again, this time with my daughter. I Baruch Hashem am happily married for 13 years and have, two, have zero interest in delving back into the painful past where I made the terrible mistake in marrying her mother and then suffered years of emotional abuse and betrayal by her. I would love to have a relationship with my daughter and think it would be mutually beneficial for us. However, the way I see it happening is starting with simple, simple steps and allowing the relationship to blossom without having to dredge up the muck her mother has poisoned her with. Hopefully, if she spends enough time with me, she will get to know me as a person, as the person I am and not the person her manipulative mother says I am. What light can you shed on this for me? P.S., at the end of the tragedy of estrangement, you and Josh talked about acceptance of a situation. I think that this is the best advice for me. I suffer from male infertility, and my wife and I had to come to terms after unsuccessful rounds of IVF. We wouldn't have kids together. Baruch Hashem, I have beautiful stepchildren in addition to my daughter from my first marriage, with whom we have a great relationship. Baruch Hashem, I have been able to be at peace with that, and I'm also at peace with whatever relationship Hashem has planned for us with my daughter. So my answer is, as we spoke on that program and as I spoke a few weeks ago, you have to do what you can normally by reaching out in a way that doesn't offend anyone and just being yourself and just saying, I am there. You, that's all you can really do. If you have more access, by all means. But I wouldn't force myself and I wouldn't do anything that is aggressive and definitely not something that may create even the, the, the opposite of results that you want a belligerence from the other end, and so on. And indeed, there is Hashem in this world. It's sad to hear, bring, I mean, it's actually very sad to hear. Parent and child, every child deserves to see his parents. Now, there are circumstances, as we discussed, where a child or parent is extremely abusive and dangerous, destructive. But barring that, every child should see its parent. It's important for the child, not just for the parent. So I'm sad to hear this, but do your best, and Hashem will help. And as I said, you want to hear more about it, listen to that program, as well as the program, I think, I believe I did this now, 451, maybe in episode 449 or 448. Okay. Another follow-up, which I got quite a few comments, about the Rebbe, was the Rebbe loving. So here were comments that came in two directions, as often is the case. One, criticizing me for criticizing the person who said what he said. Another category is people who actually said, no, my experience was that the Rebbe was not so loving. And then the majority were actually much very supportive words and went even further and said, why didn't she even go further and attack even more? So I want to address it all. And I see also this is an opportunity not just to address the issue, but also to address how we address issues. And I think it's something we all can learn from. And I work very hard on this, something that I've been trained, but I also work on it. It's critical to separate between a topic and the people 
who are involved in the discussion of that topic. In other words, to depersonalize. It's not my role, and God did not send me to this earth to be here to judge or criticize anybody. At the same time, I was blessed with a certain amount of knowledge, a certain amount of experience, a certain amount of exposure and, and uh, credibility to bring clarity to topics. So when a topic is brought up by somebody, I separate there's the person who said it or didn't say it, and there's what the topic is. If the topic has gained enough attention, it needs to be addressed because people are, are talking about it and they may not be clear about it. This has nothing to do with the person. Even if I disagree with the person, there's nothing to do with that person. It's to do with the topic. I think it's vital to go there, which is why I'll never mention names because not, that's not my job. And frankly, most of the people that watch this program don't even know. I know people who know the people involved often think everybody knows. It's not correct. I would say 90% of the people listened to last week's program didn't even know that someone said something like that and who that is. So my goal was to take the topic, since it's out there, and sometimes a topic that a lot of people are interested in. People have asked me over the years, the Rebbe, you know, what was he like, his personality? Now frankly, though I knew the Rebbe to a certain extent, I was exposed to him, I, was, I worked for him, and so on, but I didn't live with him. I can't say I was his friend. I saw him on a daily basis. There are people I know, siblings, family, strangers, that I know well, I was classmates with. And I'll always say that. So I don't know. I'm not talking about what I believe a Rebbe is and what he stands for. But I do know what I've seen and what I experience. And we also know what a Rebbe does stand for. So the people have asked the question, was the Rebbe, like, was he nice to people on a personal level? Doesn't seem like some people argued and like was said, the Rebbe didn't seem always to encourage people. I find it the opposite. I feel thing that people didn't realize there's different ways to encourage people. You know, there's babysitting, taking care of watching. When you watch a two-year-old, that's how you are. When your child is 20 years old, the love is expressed differently. But that can be discussed. And again, that's one point I want to make. Separate between the two. And I'll address this some more in a moment. Second thing that's critical is my goal is always a productive one. What do we learn from this? And what do we come away from this? And finally, the third point that is a litmus test for all of this, is the fact that people can have different opinions. No issue at all. I'm not imposing my opinion on anybody. I could just bring what I think, bring sources, and explain it the best way possible. There's nothing wrong with having disagreements, as long as it's respectable, respectful, and civil, and presented in a, in a very kind and gentle and beautiful, generous way. This isn't about witch hunting. This isn't about that. I mentioned that before. I think these are vital points, especially when it comes to things that someone says. So it really doesn't even matter who said what. It matters what's on the table here. It was a, another series of questions that came in. What would be my advice to this individual who said something that he feels was mis, that he or others feel he was misunderstood or just criticized by people who just looking to criticize when the intentions were very different? So that I want to address that as well. Not that I'm telling anyone what to do, but being that's part of the discussion, because to me these are real issues that apply to so many different situations. I'm not just talking about this specific thing. This happens to be the topic at hand. So the first thing, let's go back to the topic itself. The topic is, since people ask the question, the Rebbe is a big presence in people's lives. 
Even though it's 29 years from Gimel Tammuz. A big presence. People change their entire lives because of the Rebbe. They're on shlichas. They have children that grew up on shlichas. Grandchildren now, great-grandchildren. People's lives. And some people have a lot of questions about it. Because the Rebbe is not here right now physically. What responsibility do I have to him? What does he mean to me? Is he just some distant memory? Just an authority? Is he a loving entity? Someone I can love when I can't see him or physically relate to him? So that was one issue. And that was very important for me to address because that I saw from the questions that came in last week how many people were questioning that. Because once it's on the table, let's talk about it. I remember, I remember 40 years ago, without names again, there were people that told me the Rebbe was not like the Friedrich Rebbe. The Friedrich Rebbe would call me in when I was a child with my family, ask how we are. You could sit and have a cup of tea with him, some chassidim felt. And the Rebbe was not like that at all. Much more like a melech. And some people were disturbed by that. My response and my reaction to that, I listened to them, they have entitled to bring that up. My response was always the same. I said, well, if he's a Rebbe, a Rebbe decides how he wants to be. Maybe there's different times, different Rebbe's, different ways. Like, I don't know, Moshe Rabbeinu, was Moshe Rabbeinu someone you could sit down and have a cup of tea with? And would he call people in? Or maybe he was, he was a Moshe Rabbeinu. And maybe he delegated that. You know what the Yisrael advised him? Sari Yalofim, Sari Meyes, Sari Asiris, etc. There was Aaron who was involved much more. And, the, and it actually, it says, that's why Vayifku Kol Yisrael. All the Jews cried because he was involved in Shalom Bayez. Moshe was more from the mountain. Yishal Akim. This doesn't make one better or worse. We're not talking here on that level. We're talking, each one has their role to play. And among the Rabbeim, there's nothing, I mean, you could say they're different personalities. They were holy people, each one. And their personalities were also holy, but different methods. We know the Alter Rebbe was more Chachmed, Mitle Rebbe Bina. The Rebbe spoke many times. The Baal would travel around. The Mitle Magid was more, Alter Nechamakim was stayed in one place. So Rabbeim had different approaches, different styles, just like Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. So in that context, it's all different Rebbe approaches. What, what you prefer, your personal preference? Well, since you're in this generation, maybe Hashem put you in this generation because that's what you need. To start psychoanalyzing a Rebbe is like starting to psychoanalyze Rabbi Akiva because he was a Ben Gedim and until 40 didn't learn Tata. Maybe that's why it affected the way he taught. Chaz Shalom. We have to be very careful not to over-humanize, even though he was a human being. But you don't want to say it's human, humanize him to the point where it says, You're not supposed to see a king even when he's taking a haircut. Everyone knows he's taking a haircut. You see that he took a haircut. Why? Because there's a certain hadras covered for a melech. Same thing with a rebbe. So that was one issue I wanted to address very clearly, talk about, first of all, how you talk about a rebbe. Number two is very facts. What the Rebbe, when he was demanding, what kind of demanding was it? And as I explained, it came from love. Was the Rebbe in the same way like a babysitter, like a person that you'd call in, you want to call the Rebbe, come? Well, we have many stories where the Rebbe went out of his way to help people. Amazing stories. But as Kamuvan, as the Rebbe grew in his leadership and the people grew, the Rebbe couldn't have personal yechidus. That was not a sign of anything. It simply meant there was no time. So the Rebbe changed it with, with the public yechidus. Yechidus klolis. Then there were dollars. So you have to look at the whole picture here. And especially if you look through the eyes of what a Rebbe is. If you're talking like a human being, you want to analyze two people, this person happens to be nice or not nice. 
I don't know if anybody can really know that unless you knew the Rebbe really on a day-to-day basis over all the years. How was the Rebbe in 1920, in 1930, 1940? We have sporadic stories here and there. And, and I don't want to work on hearsay, because hearsay is just hearsay. This, some people may have had a run-in with the Rebbe, Kav Yochel. So they would have one experience. Another person had a very beautiful experience. So that's regarding the topic itself. Regarding how to, how to address it in a personal way, as I said, there's nothing personal at all. What would be my advice if I, you know, I've said many things. Sometimes I stand in this program and I stand corrected. Either I said something factually or wrong, or I rethought it, or somebody gave a different approach, or sometimes I'll read a different approach, which, not, which, not, which I may not even agree with, but there's different approaches. So generally, if you're a public figure and you want to have credibility, and you said something that was misunderstood, so clarify. If you stand by what you said, and it wasn't a misspoken, then clarify. Say, this is what I stand by, this is what I wanted to bring across, and you know, some people may not like what you're saying, so be it. So clarify. If indeed they misunderstood altogether what you said, you meant something else, so clarify as well. If you think you made a mistake, correct it. And I'm saying this to myself as well, I would do exactly the same. So with that context is where I would address all these different issues and, um, and so on. So to read a few questions that came in both directions, so we'll start first with, the, we'll start with the critique, so to speak. Rabbi Jacobson, with the utmost respect, I cannot fathom why someone of your stature and what you represent would think that it would be acceptable or a good idea to speak about blank publicly like you did. Yes, you didn't mention his name, but everyone knew who you were referring to. The answer is my friend, no, not everyone knew. Most people did not know. You know, and others that may know, may know. But I wasn't there to address him or what he said. I was addressing the topic. And many people thank me for addressing the topic without never having to mention anyone's name. It's not relevant to the topic. Just commenting. I can't understand why you wouldn't have called him first to discuss what he said and then go, go from there. And yes, I spoke to him and asked whether you did reach out to him. I believe that what he said was in context and when one listens to the whole podcast, one could understand what he was saying. But to disparage him and to double down because he never met the Rebbe before 27th other is clearly inappropriate. Especially in the days preceding Shavuos, a time of Agdus and Klal it seems like a bad choice. With hope that this can be repaired in a constructive and respectful manner, sincerely, and signed by a rabbi. I, I, uh, I, I personally, because, it was, because I'm subjective, so I asked someone in my office who's very good at responding to answer accordingly, and I actually did not write it, but I, uh, I uh, answered any questions this person wrote back. So here's what we wrote back to this individual. Thank you for reaching out. Hi, Rabbi. Thank you for reaching out to MLC. We appreciate and always welcome all comments. And with your permission, we would like to read your words on the next program. And he, indeed, he gave permission. Regarding the issue itself, while we, while we respect and commend your protecting the honor of uh, this individual, we are a bit surprised of why the honor of the Lubavitcher Rebbe and his many chassidim are not equally important to protect. Many, many people were deeply offended by his words, that the Rebbe was not loving and kind and never praised anyone, that the idea of him being beloved is a myth based on some photos, etc. So while, you're un- while you are entitled to your opinion on the matter and you have the right to agree with him, it would seem fair and appropriate, especially in the days before Shavuos, the time of Agdus and Klal as you eloquently put it, to also recognize and consider the feelings of so many others on this topic. Frankly, many are wondering why he didn't take your advice and consult with a few experts before making his comments which many see as disparaging. 
Even more surprising is the fact that you chose not to address Rabbi Jacobson's sensitive words about the very nature of the Rebbe and his experience in working with the Rebbe. Instead of focusing on the very issue at hand, you seem more concerned about the honor of an individual who, as you point out, was not even mentioned by name. As you may know, Rabbi Jacobson, okay, I feel uncomfortable reading this, is lauded for addressing relevant topics in a fair and balanced way. He never personalizes the issues discussed. In this case, we received tens of questions asking for clarity about the Rebbe's personality and style based on that individual's remarks, and he felt it important to set the record straight for the benefit of the public record. Thank you again for writing, and we hope that our words are taken by you in the correct spirit in which they were intended. Good yontif. The, the, the rabbi responded again, the same idea, basically, that uh, he felt that it's not appropriate to uh, talk about a rabbi saying something without first calling him. Um, so I don't know if I have to read that. And he concludes, Chacham is That Chacham should be careful what they say. Absolutely, I totally agree. But I think that should be applied to all Chachamim, to everyone who speaks in public. And I want to just say one thing about, I totally agree that when someone says something or is accused of something, they should be confronted first before you talk about it in public, to let them give them a right to defend themselves. But if someone says something in public that's reached hundreds or thousands of people and people are talking about it, if you're not addressing this person and you're not here to vindicate or to accuse someone, you're talking about the topic. I don't see any issue at all. If someone heard something I had said and it was said in public, they're entitled to get up and say something in response to it without calling me. If I was accused of something, or I did something, and I say, and, and I wouldn't get, I would say every person should first consult, what, what, you know, what's your defense, or so on. So I don't think this is about an accusation of anything, and that's not at all the spirit of this. I think it's vital to make that distinction. Again, publicly said or not. If it's just privately, one person said to someone, and you heard about it, then you could ask, is it true that you said that you're not true? But once it's public, you just have to listen to the recording and then you come to it. Now, many times people say things they don't even mean what they're saying. They may mean something else. Like you say, there's context. I totally agree with that. That's why I would encourage to provide the right context and explain what is going on here. Another person wrote the exact opposite. Thank you for your latest episode addressing the recent disturbing comments about the Rebbe. I would like to point out that I believe that there were a few additional inaccurate statements made. Your clarification on this matter would be greatly appreciated. Um, and the main thing that this guy wants to say is that someone, this individual said that what the Rebbe is saying today may not be that relevant, that approach, because today we need more compassion. People are going through trauma and personal issues. So some people took offense to that. Now what do you mean? The Rebbe is not relevant, less relevant. So here again, I would say, and I don't, again, don't, this is not an, any, I'm not talking about an individual conceptually. The Rebbe is a Torah person. It would be like someone saying that Tanya is not relevant. Why? Because the Alter Rebbe does not personally address every trauma or every personal experience. But the Alter Rebbe says, I'm giving answers to all the questions. And he also says, go to the G'delem Shebi'ir. If you don't have, if you can't derive an answer, find people that can help. As I've explained a number of times, G'delem Shebi'ir means mature people, emotionally mature, that can address your issues. Nowhere does it say the Torah says Aseilacharav, Kneilachachavir. Which, by the way, Kneilachachavir means a friend. It's more personal, and Arav is more authority. You need both. Why? Why isn't the Torah not enough? Because the Torah is the doctrine. The Rabbeim tell us the doctrine. 
Then they approached things as much as they were able to provide their personal service as in Yechidist or letters and so on. But they told us, have a rav, have a chav. So someone doesn't feel the love that they need to feel. You should have a mashpia who can explain to you how every word in Chassidus is loving. So I would say the following, the Rebbe's words are Nitzchim. And the Rebbe said everything that a Deira Shvir had to hear. Now it's our role, mashpiyim, mashpiyes, people who are teachers, mentors, writers, to take the Rebbe's words and explain what he means and explain the love that's within them. Why would the Rebbe spend his whole time, his whole life, he could have just spent learning on his own. He felt the necessity to go and talk to people and be involved with people. All these rabbeim, to me the biggest act of love is that they spend time writing chassidus for us. They could have spent time connecting to God and doing their thing without necessarily interacting. But you need to, it's a muscular vision, that's a given. That's like saying, the Torah doesn't begin that God loves you. It says, God created heaven and earth. But why did he create heaven and earth? Because he loves you. And he wants you to be his partner in life. That needs to be explained. Sometimes it needs to be spelled out if it's not understood on its own. So another person wrote regarding the, 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 asked me if I saw the discussion. I was involved in the heated debate on a WhatsApp group of young shluchim, and it was disingenuous to start the clip after the question he was asked. The interviewer asked what the rabbi would tell him about his work, leading him to pat himself on the back. He responded, just like you were, I would, albeit in being grub averta, when the interviewer pushed that the rebel was kind and angelic, that's where the clip starts. Bottom line, he's saying that it was taken out of context. So again, I think context is valuable and it should be heard. I personally would not have spoken about this if I didn't hear the entire context. So I'm quite aware. And again, these are all topics that people have different experiences. I, for example, don't have an issue if someone gets up and says, I had personal experience with the Rebbe and I felt the Rebbe was tough and I didn't see that kindness. You're entitled to your experience. Why I said that somebody would never met the Rebbe because then everything is coming from hearsay. You could hear from people that say the Rebbe was unbelievable love. Some people the Rebbe say it was more demanding. I even read the answer from the Rebbe, which I didn't see anyone make comment on. The Rebbe himself spoke about someone calling him harsh. And he says he doesn't recognize that person. I mean, the Rebbe is a truthful person. You have to quote him. He's saying that. In other words, if you tell him that, the Rebbe has a response to that. I think it's not fair not to quote the Rebbe's own response in his own defense, if you wish. Not that he needs to defend himself. Okay. I think enough is said about that. Let me conclude on the most important note of all. Before Matan Teda was Vayichan Sham Yisrael Negedahor Ki'ishachad Belevechad. That was the, the, the prerequisite, that we all are one, one heart, one person, one organism. Barcheinu Avinu Kulanu Kechad. Our blessings come from Achdus, from love of each other. That doesn't mean we're the same, we're not clones. We're different, we're diverse. Ain't Dei Sein Shavas, we have different opinions, different faces different view, viewpoints, different perspectives. That's what makes it beautiful. Obviously, there can be people who are wrong and right. That's why we have a tailor with a framework. But the framework also allows for many different opinions. I think that's the vital thing. Matan tater could not happen if there was one Jew missing. So I look at it this way, in the context of anything that we discuss, this topic or other topics. We're all God's children. Each of us was blessed you're a sacred person. We're all human beings as well. We make our mistakes. I can start with myself to make it clear. 
But at the end of the day, we're all godly creatures. We're all godly children. And that's how we have to look at ourselves. And that's why when you talk about any topic, let's, get, let's cut away the personal. We're not here to attack anyone personally. There's no character assassination. There's no personality thing. It's not at all the discussion here. The discussion is, what is the topic at hand? Let's address it for its merit. And let's try to do our best to get the best clarity. What is the Torah clarity? And if there are different opinions, so be it. All said in a civil, kind, cordial way. And that's how we create the harmony within diversity. If we can come away from Matan Teda, that spirit of Ardus and Avas Yisrael, that is what Matan Teda represents. And then bring that love and that spirit of love to everyone we meet. That despite our differences, we're still one part of one. Kulam Asimus. As the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya. Who knows who's the greatest? We don't know. We're not, even, we're not asked to know. And we're not charged to know. It's not our job. Our job is to spread teda, spread chesidah, spread love, spread understanding. And that's the spirit of this program and hopefully all the programs out there that are trying to spread teda, chesidah, God's words. Everyone should be blessed with a, 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 a taking the power of Matan Teda, Teda, Mitzvahs, Avis Yisrael, Ava, unconditional love into our lives, into the summer months. And indeed, through all of that, just as Sinas Chinam, baseless hatred brought the destruction, Avas Chinam, unconditional love will bring the rebuilding of the base of Yiddish Hashlishi, Mamish now, even before we finish this program. Thank you so much. This has been My Life Says It's Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Be well and be blessed. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.